Greetings, everyone. Welcome back to the Knights and Nerds podcast. My name is Tim. I'm the Dungeon Master of this podcast. You probably know that already. And I want to say thank you very much for listening to this. This is another behind-the-screen campaign planning episode, the sixth one that we've done so far. I've got a lot to recap today. So, in case you don't know, I'm going to be talking about episodes 22 to 30, and then also what might be coming up ahead. So, if you haven't listened to any of the other behind-the-screen episodes, and you don't want things spoiled for you, then, you know, download this, and then maybe listen to it later, once you're caught up. But before we get into things, I just want to talk a minute about the Kickstarter that we're doing. I mentioned it at the top of episode 30, and I am very happy with the way things are going so far. We've got 40, I think like 44% of the way there after not quite a week, which is awesome. We've had, uh, I think, seven or eight people backing so far, which is great. And the whole purpose of our Kickstarter is to provide part of the costs of new audio recording equipment that will help us provide better audio quality in our episodes and also will greatly reduce the impact or or the time required for me, who does all the editing, to do the editing. So that means if I'm spending less time behind the scenes doing all this editing stuff, which, you know, is kind of tedious means there's it's more time that I can spend making more stuff for you to enjoy, whether it's episodes or maybe putting some stuff up on the DMs Guild eventually, which I am thinking about doing. So just to give a quick rundown of the rewards that we have, if you want to support us, and if you don't, that's fine, but if you do, awesome. Uh, you can pledge like $2 and we'll give you a very heartfelt shout out at the top of one of our episodes, like the whole group saying thank you. Uh, a few dollars more than that will get you the shout-out plus a limerick read by Faye, well, Candace as Faye, about how awesome you are. After that, we're going to do a group discussion episode where we're all just kind of talking about the way things are going, what it's like to record a campaign instead of just playing it without the pressure of worrying how you sound. The players will talk about what their theories are about what's going on and how things might end, and other stuff like that. I should also mention that if you pledge at a certain level, you also get like all of the lower levels of pledges. But anyways, so after the after the group discussion episode, we're doing a bard, a new bard subclass, College of Mime. I, I think there's a couple of versions of this out there already, but I'm going to try to make my own, make it really fun and ridiculous. So Bard College of Mime subclass. After that, we're going to do a one sort of a one-off tangential episode with with all the characters where they sort of have a shared dream or a shared hallucination in which they participate in a very elaborate heist. The next level up from that will be a Thanos one-shot episode where Candace, Katie, Matt, and Tom will make 20th level characters, and they will go toe-to-toe with my iteration of Thanos. And they will probably lose. Next up from that, you can get an original freaking campaign that will go from levels 1 to 10. This is something I'm going to write from scratch. So an original story, an original setting, unique monsters, unique NPCs, all for you. 
Next up from that, you can co-host an episode with me, like one of these types of episodes. We can talk about the campaign, what you've thought about it, you know, what's worked, what hasn't. And then you can help me like plan out some stuff coming up for the future of this campaign. You can help me plan some stuff. Sometimes I don't know what I'm doing and I could use some help. And the top level uh, pledge, as I mentioned, is $100. I will run a one-shot for you and your friends. So one afternoon, I imagine it'll probably take between four to six hours, we'll do a one-shot adventure over Skype or something similar. You can decide on the character level and the adventure style. I've already had somebody back this, which is great, and they've requested a haunted carnival-themed one-shot, which I am super psyched to do. If you think there isn't going to be an encounter on a moving roller coaster, then you are totally wrong. Anyways, I believe this backer had actually gotten together with a few friends, so you know what? If you don't want to pay for the whole thing, get like four or five of your friends each pitch in for an afternoon of quality entertainment. I'd say that's pretty good, and then and then you can just not uh, not tell them that you are also getting all of the extra stuff. You can keep that for yourself. Anyways, there's links to this all over our social media, so check out check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, in the show notes, we've got links. So if you consider supporting us in this venture, I'd be extraordinarily grateful. Anyways, let's talk about this campaign that's been happening, this Dungeons & Dragons campaign that we've been doing. And we're going to look back to episodes 22 through to 30. So episodes 22, 23, and 24 were all sort of on the road. These episodes, these were all overland travel episodes. And I had done one episode just talking about another system of rules to make overland travel somewhat interesting. Now, I tried my best to incorporate all those things that I said into the game. And now it's sort of time to think back on whether or not it added to the game in a meaningful way, or if we could have taken that out altogether. Did I make the travel interesting? Did I give the characters, uh, sorry, did I give the players meaningful choices to make? And did those choices matter? So episode 22 Immediately, the players were thinking strategically about how to travel discreetly, which was great. This is not even something that I had to compel them to do. Because they botched their exit from Pharaoh's Point, they were sort of trying to leave discreetly, and they totally biffed it. So, they sort of leave in a bit of a hurry, and they knew there, there was a chance that the Dragonborn would be coming out after them. And they were also told before this, that there were assassins out looking to claim a bounty that Agarand had placed on them. So the beginning, I thought, was really cool because they're, they're thinking in terms of like the narrative storytelling. Like, what can we do to make ourselves not stand out? They weren't even like thinking about the rules, or they were just thinking about like what would work in a narrative sense, which was great. So that part of the, that part of the journey was really hands-off for me. And they did decide, I, I sort of told them like, listen, you can take a main road, you can take a sort of like side roads, farm roads, or you can just straight up off-road it altogether. And each of these choices would have different experiences in terms of their travel. So they decided to do the sort of side road, farm road options. So in terms of 
what this overland travel added to the campaign. I think one of the main benefits was that it expanded the feel of the world. And if nothing else was accomplished, I feel like the journey was worthwhile for that reason alone. They were sort of just coming off of like a, a stretch of six or seven or eight episodes where they were underground. So there was, you know, they were dealing with that very claustrophobic sort of feeling. They had some tough encounters. And these three episodes, you know, they didn't really have a difficult time of it. They weren't really ever in danger. And I feel like that's an important balance to have. If you're going from one life-threatening situation to another, there needs to be a bit of a release where they can just sort of relax and get their bearings, you know, get their balance back. And I feel like this did that as well. The journey also allowed me to introduce some NPCs. There was Arn Bjorg O'Houlihan, the traveling merchant. There were the wizards from the Arcane Academy who were traveling with the clairvoyant named Teller. And there was Redlam Feynman, who was a listener name request that I thought I thought the characters were going to kill him. I'm sorry that they didn't kill you. I can't recall who made that request, but I have failed in not having had the players kill you. But maybe you'll come back in some amusing way. And maybe they'll kill you then. So there's always hope. But regarding the clairvoyant, I think based on the fact that Arizax has been inside the Arcane Academy for quite some time, it would not have been possible for the players to have met the clairvoyant within the confines of Pharaoh's Point. During the travel, I used the random occurrence table, not the random encounter table, the random occurrence table to what I think were some positive outcomes. On this table were things like just sightings, the bear was one of them, a natural obstacle in the road like a landslide I think was one of them, and the appearance of dog was one of them. And dog, I'm very excited to say, has become an enormous emotional liability for the players. I really predict that at some point, a villain, in one form or another, will get a hold of the dog and use dog as a bargaining chip. This reminds me of, there's a Stephen King book where he has a, a, a villain, a bad guy. I can't remember which book it is, but I, I remember hear, hearing him talk in an interview about how do you convey that somebody's a bad guy, you have them kick a dog. Now if, for example, Arizax was walking down the street and saw a dog and then bent over to pet dog, I think that would take the heroes by surprise. Saying like, hey, maybe Arizax isn't completely irredeemable. He's got some compassion in him. But if you want to quickly convey how bad someone is, have them kick a dog. I think it was Stephen King's rule. Maybe he picked that up from someone else. I don't know. But uh, yeah. So as much as I love dogs, this particular dog may meet a gruesome fate, which doesn't quite bother me because it doesn't exist. The time spent on the road also showed the players the dragon forms in the sky, though they are now mostly certain that what they saw was an airship after episode 30 entitled Sky Ninjas. And the journey also impressed upon them the fact that they are quite definitely considered targets now, with the appearance of Redlam Feynman, who is trying to pass off a magical ring that would basically act as a beacon. I feel like I got a lot of predictions wrong in the last episode, but the one prediction I got 110% correct 
was that Redlam would appeal to Faye's vanity and she would welcome him into the camp, which is exactly what happened. Just that everyone else was super suspicious and not buying it. But I was right about Faye. So anyways, the heroes know that they're definitely on the bad guy's radar. And I'll mention again, Martin the Cloak implored Gilladob to find out all that he could about the assassins led by Wrath, the black-skilled Dragonborn. And Redlam Feynman, who approached them, I think it was in episode 24, basically confirmed that he was hired by Wrath to track them down, and Gilly didn't delve too deep into finding out more about Wrath. Now, Martin had asked this because Wrath has a particular vendetta against Martin as well, so Martin was trying to find out what he could about this mercenary assassin so that he could, you know, take steps to avoid being in his crosshairs as well. But Tom slash Gilly didn't seem too interested in pursuing that order. In hindsight, maybe I didn't give Redlam enough information to know, to pass on to Gilly, to give him like a hook to go after more. But I kind of got the impression that he wasn't super interested Gilly, that is, wasn't super interested in in dealing with that. I can view this in one of a few ways. Uh, either as a shortcoming on Tom's part to help the guild, or it may be that this particular story thread is not one that he finds interesting. After all, there's quite a bit going on in the story right now. I've really layered in a lot of details, and I can only introduce so many elements before the player's capacity to manage all the details at once begins to get overwhelmed. So at this time, I'm not sure whether I should pursue the Assassin's subplot. I mean, maybe for a one-off encounter. I'm sort of leaning towards no. There are plenty of bad guys for the heroes to deal with already, and in episode 30, we got a sneak peek of the Gith, so the Gith are sort of on the verge of making their entry into the story. So, here's my question to you. If you are in a position to answer, should I pursue this story thread with the assassins or should I just kind of leave it alone, maybe keep it in my back pocket just in case? If you have an opinion on this and you're in the Dungeon Masters group on Facebook, I'd love to hear what you think. If you're not in the Dungeon Masters group on Facebook, I, I, I welcome you to join and tell me how bad of an idea that it is. What else happened? The encounter with the Dragonborn in episode 23 happened and that was fun. Faye used her singing sword, I think, for the first time, and the group made some new friends from the Arcane Academy. The players meeting these particular NPCs was especially important because it provided another hint to the players in the form of Teller's ominous warning to Faye. Now, you'll see how important this clue was, because in episode 29, Candace quite accurately guesses most of what's happening. In fact, I saw her just the other day, and she was asking me why I left that part in. So she's sort of meta-metagaming, thinking that I left that part in because it was relevant somehow. I didn't think, I didn't think that leaving that in would be a clue. <laughs> but anyways, no, she basically predicted with almost, I think, I think more or less 100% accuracy, what's going on. Just doesn't quite grasp the, I guess, scope, but that's not her fault. So that little hint from Teller apparently was vital for helping her piece it all together. I don't think my reaction told her anything, so for now, Candace's theory is still, as far as she knows, just a theory. 
So all in all, how were the travel episodes? If my goals were to advance the story, enrich the world, and provide opportunities for the players to do stuff, and basically everyone got a chance to do stuff, then I think I would consider them successful in those goals. Now, were my rules from the Overland travel episode, were they useful? At the time, you know, I thought so. But in hindsight, I'm not quite sure how useful they were or how much of an impact they actually made. At the very least, they were a worthwhile alternative to using random encounter tables, which I dislike, and also a good alternative to keeping track of their daily distance, which is preposterous. They deliberately used roads that were not trafficked all too frequently, and so the occurrences, as I mentioned, uh, the occurrences that took place were modified to fit that choice. All right, let's talk about Bullbrook. Episodes 25 through to 29. And part of episode 30, I guess. Part of ha half of episode 30. The player characters decided to go here because they didn't know, or yeah, the characters didn't quite know enough about Dragonbone. So they felt they should find out more before deciding on a course of action that would lead them to the Dragonbone. To recap, this is what they knew that their options were. To go into the wilderness which is what they eventually decided to do, to go to talk to the giants in the north. And I didn't quite present it as just straight up that they could steal the bones from the shrine, but I thought that once they knew that there was this full skeleton just sitting there, being guarded by this sort of stuffy religious order, that they might just quickly decide to steal the bones from the shrine. I was really surprised. I thought that was like going to be the first thing that they did. Steal the bones from the shrine. I thought Dane Rubii's dour and severe demeanor, his cold, untrusting nature would alienate him from the players, and that Victor's more down-to-earth persona would win them to his side. I mean, it just about did. For Faye, it did anyways, but her, his, his willingness to help, over time, it just made the players, the other players, more suspicious. I remember Tom saying, I don't recall which episode it was, but I remember Tom saying at one point, at least Dane's flaws are obvious. So I guess that's one lesson that I've learned. If you, if you make a character who has an ulterior motive too helpful, the players will be suspicious. If you make an NPC who is just by nature helpful, they will still probably be very suspicious. But the fact that no one in the Alliance had heard of Victor Woodstride was, I think, the first seed that would eventually transform mere uncertainty into full-on distrust. I guess we should also talk about Thorn Twinhammer and Cliff Muscle showing up. They appeared because of the group's failure to leave the city discreetly. Originally, I had thought that the appearance of these antagonists and their accusation that they were smuggling new life would have ramifications for the players, and that word about this accusation would get back to Dane and that it would land them in some sort of trouble, that this would have negative consequences for them. But during our time playing, I was getting the sense that they were maybe struggling a bit with direction. Part of me thought that adding in this element, that they'd be in trouble with Dane, would really just slow them down. That it would just be another complication, but maybe it would have forced them more decisively into another direction. As if, okay, well that door has been closed for us, let's go through another one of these doors, because our options are now more limited. I really can't say, I, but I was getting the feeling that they were very on the fence about what to do, 
And I was hesitant to add in just another complication at that point, so... In particular, they were on the fence with what to do with Victor Woodstride up until the moment they found out his true identity. And a quick note about that revelation. I, too, was on the fence about when they should find that out. At first, my aim was to reveal his true identity after the Dragonbone heist had taken place. But then I thought, we're already going to have sort of a surprise reveal with Elwyn, finding out that he's not exactly himself. And I thought that maybe two surprises, like that they were too similar. And so at that moment, I just thought to myself, you know what, I'll let the dice decide. I called for a perception check, thinking that if anyone gets over 20, they'll notice something or they'll overhear something. And Candace and Tom both rolled over 20. I mean, I shouldn't be surprised that Tom rolled over 20. Gildob has an insane bonus to perception. And so they found out. And the encounter with Victor, aka Ulrich Bearhart, was brief? I kind of thought it was a bit anticlimactic. I mean, I was really just happy to have that sort of story thread heading towards being wrapped up. But on one hand, one of my goals in this campaign was to put the heroes in some kind of moral dilemma. And I think I succeeded at least in that part, and at least temporarily. Finding out who he was wasn't a deal breaker. It was until they got a glimpse of Ulrich's personality and his hungry f- and his hunger for power at any cost. That was the factor that really made up their minds to go against him. But anyways, what are your thoughts about that? Should he have been a tougher opponent? Should I have waited until after they robbed the temple before revealing his true identity? Should I have made allying with him seem more attractive? The players mentioned on multiple occasions Dane's clan and the benefits of having them as allies. They did not have the same impression of Ulrich as someone who commanded a formidable fighting force, although they are cognizant that he still has supporters who may try to get back at them at some point which is something I think I'll keep in my back pocket for now, along with the assassins. Having this remnant of Bearheart supporters, you know, just the core of fanatical devotees, turning their anger against the players could be interesting if deployed at the right time. But again, this may run the risk of too much going on. And the final important consequence of the players' time in Bullbrook is introducing Brita, a long-lost family member of Vanna. Katie didn't really include a whole lot in her backstory, so I thought, you know what, I'll take some liberties with that and introduce a cousin. This also will prove to be important. Perhaps not in terms of the overall story, but to Vanna's character specifically because of what may happen in episode 33, which, as of this episode being out, has not been recorded. I don't want to go into too much detail because there was a spur-of-the-moment decision involved uh, due to some troubleshooting with the recording equipment that we had rented in episode 32, so I wasn't able to incorporate a bunch of stuff that the awesome DM Facebook group had suggested in terms of like fire-themed encounters and stuff. I was really hoping to include some of that, but uh, I was still trying to figure out how to use this equipment, and as a result spent maybe a bit too much time getting it figured out. And so I had to cut a bunch of stuff. So 
Thanks everyone for your suggestions and sorry that I had to cut a whole bunch of stuff, but hopefully what we did get is just as good. I had to improvise and I'll leave it at that since I'm very excited for everyone to hear it. There's a big cliffhanger at the end of episode 32. I'll just say that someone is finding themselves alone and in a lot of trouble. And lastly, before moving on to things yet to come, I wanted to mention that the airship chase scene in episode 30 was improvised as well. I hadn't planned for the players to see the airship, but they mentioned it. Someone said maybe we'll see something once we get up there. Up there being this guy. And I thought for the second time, let the dice decide. Tom was flying his familiar around, keeping an eye out, and I thought, okay, if his perception check is high enough, then they see the airship. After all, I think it's about time for the gith to make a bit more of an appearance. And wouldn't you know it, Tom rolled a natural 20. I'm pretty sure he did. And thus, let there be gith. Okay, what comes next? As of this recording, the players have obtained the dragon bones, which means they are about to have the cure for new life, which will prove to be of huge importance in the final chapter of the campaign. This also means that they have only to get the Staff of Control and to confront Agarand and Arizax for Elwyn's device to be complete. Kind of curious, like, what form the cure should take. Like, something that you have to ingest? Should it be something that, like, goes into your bloodstream? Or could it be made into, like, a pellet that can be burned? And if you inhale the smoke, then it can cure you. I'm just trying to think, what would what would be best? Or maybe not what would be best. What would force the players to think the most creatively? A suppository? Yeah, maybe. Anyways, after at, at this point, I've planned out very little. I cannot stress that enough. I've planned out very little. My position really is trying to anticipate what the players will do next. They've mentioned going to Tall Hill to talk to the clairvoyant and probably to meet back up with Lilith, but they're hoping to get some more information from the clairvoyant about Elwyn, I think. Something to either confirm their suspicions or assuage them, but as the DM, I'm not inclined to simply give them answers. I might give them some clues, phrased very cryptically, Something open to interpretation. I might try to convey that the real Elwyn still exists, and that he can be saved. Elwyn is a thrall to the Mind Flayers, but that hold can be broken. There's a, a method of saving someone, curing someone from their thrallhood, in Volo's Guide to Monsters. I don't know what it is off the top of my head. I think, it, I think a restoration spell is involved. I don't know if I'll require the same process as that. But if the players don't know that Elwyn can be rescued, they will probably just kill him. And I feel like knowing that there's a possibility could lead to some interesting moral role-playing. I feel like Vanna would be inclined to not take the chance. And I feel like Spruce and also Gilly would be more inclined to just do whatever it takes even if there's only the slightest chance to save him. Actually, I think Gilly seems to me, anyways, to be the most inclined to want to save Elwyn, since Gilly has demonstrated 
the greatest affection for the city of Pharaoh's Point and what it represents, as well as those who helped establish the city and turned it into the haven that it would eventually become, namely Kalira and Elwyn. The possibility of saving Elwyn may not just be an interesting moral choice, but it may also be an important goal for them to achieve for a different reason. And this is something that I'm also sort of just keeping in my back pocket. Thrall Elwyn has made the device to teleport, as I said before, an elder brain into Pharaoh's Point because they're setting up a new colony, or I guess taking back their old territory. But the real Elwyn, who still exists in one tiny refuge of his own mind, has built a flaw into the device. Maybe not a flaw exactly, but a safeguard. The device, with some simple modifications, can still be used to locate and rescue Kalira. If you've seen the first Avengers movie, I guess spoilers if you haven't, if you haven't, like, come on. In the first Avengers movie, you'll, you'll probably remember the scientist dude that builds the... Uh, he uses a Tesseract to build the portal for Loki, and he's basically a thrall. But part of him isn't a thrall. Part of him isn't under Loki's influence, and so he, I guess, unconsciously builds a flaw into the device. So it's sort of the same thing with Elwyn. I guess you could say I borrowed that bit from the Avengers. I also used a similar, similar plot device in one of my books called What Has Returned. That's all that I'll say, is I don't want to spoil the plot of the book. But if you're interested, you can go to Amazon, find the first book, What Was Forgotten. Second book, even better, What Has Returned. Third book, even the best, What Will Survive. Anyways, I digress. After Tall Hill, if they go there, the players will have to figure out how to engage Agaran and Arizax, how to approach them. I suspect that they'll want to confront them separately, which is the smart thing to do. But before the players can decide anything, I have to figure out what these two have been up to in the time since the, the players left Pharaoh's Point. After all, they're not just waiting around for the heroes to get back. No, they're proactive, intelligent characters who have plans of their own. Hagran has been trying to break through the underground choke point created by the Fathom's fighters, but he is stuck. He has made no progress. Meanwhile, Arizax is trying to figure out what happened to Kalira. Since he doesn't know who's responsible for her, her disappearance, and that there's been no sighting of her since she disappeared, he's very concerned that whoever is responsible for that could still be capable of doing the same thing to him. I tell you, Arizax, he's going to be fun once the players get to him. I haven't even told you guys all the fun tricks that Arizax has up his sleeve. He's very interested in learning who's responsible. And so he's been in the Arcane Academy for quite some time since his first thought is that they were the ones who did it. But he's slowly coming to accept the fact that they didn't. That they have no idea who did. And again, just to recap, her disappearance was part of the Mind Flayers' plan. They were wanting to get rid of potential threats, and they succeeded in getting rid of Kalira, but their device malfunctioned. It didn't teleport in the Elder Brain at that time. It only accomplished half of its goal, and so their, their device failed, and so they needed a new one, which is where Elwyn comes in. Anyways, Arizax is slowly coming to realize that no one knows exactly what happened to Kalira. 
which must mean that there's some other unknown force at work in Pharaoh's point. I mean, that's the only conclusion that he could possibly come to. Arizax would then share this concern with Agarand. With the two of them convinced that there is some kind of unknown force working against them, what would they do? They've been foiled in their attempt to achieve their main goal, which is to go underground. They haven't defeated their nemesis, Clarice, since she's vanished. And the city itself grows more and more chaotic by the day as the scourge of new life continues to spread. Their objective was to undo their defeat in the war. And regardless of whether they bring the dragons back, which, you know, they won't, it's sort of almost like they've achieved this. Pharaoh's point is a shadow of his former self. Their ruler is gone. All their presence now is doing is costing them time, effort, and resources to control this massive city that's devolving into chaos. So how long would it be before they decide to take as much wealth as they can from Pharaoh's point, move their forces outside of the city, and just burn it to the ground? I feel like if the players are still sort of dithering in their decision-making, I will get a message to them either through like the tattoo meeting room or by some other means that the dragonborn are on the verge of leaving the city in ashes and that like whatever they're planning to do they need to to do it quickly so when the players get back to Ferris point agarin will have returned to the surface enraged at his failure to break through the underground bottleneck he and arizax will be in the academy conferring on what their next move should be they still haven't found Elwyn, Alasha, Martin, or Shigar. Perhaps they would try to compel their enemies to reveal themselves with some kind of threat. I could borrow something from the Dark Knight, say that, you know, every every day that you don't reveal yourself, somebody will be executed. Yeah, this is another point that I could use everyone's feedback on. What if you were, you know, a hyper-intelligent, but also easily enraged dragon tyrant, what would you do? Now, I, as the DM, have a couple of choices about how to frame, or whether or not I will frame either of these encounters. Do I let the players fully determine the circumstances? Or do I try to tip the scales in one way or the other? Narratively, Agarand does have people on the lookout for the heroes, and they already know this. I could have them try to, like, have to sneak back into the city do a little bit of a stealth mission to make sure that they're not found out. Though I feel like they would succeed very easily, and therefore trying to have like a, a more elaborate test of their abilities might just be a waste of time, maybe. After all, I want them to get back into the city so that they can, so that Elwyn can complete his device and we can move on to the, like, the next part of the story. Do I allow them to choose the circumstances of their encounter with one of the two bad guys, and then I choose the other. So let's say they lure Agarand into combat, and they defeat him. But while that's happening, Arizax finds one of the members of the Alliance, let's say Martin, and sort of holds Martin hostage. That could make for an interesting encounter. It could also be an interesting story beat when they're riding high on the success of defeating Agarand, only to sort of be dealt this gut punch knowing that one of their closest allies is a prisoner. And what role, if any, should the Gith play during this time? 
Like, I know that they're tracking the players because of the black orb that they have. And just to remind you, the orb is a device from the Mind Flayer uh, spaceship from underneath. The Nautiloid is sort of a, a navigational device, which no one has attuned to it. It actually does some pretty cool stuff, like contact other plane, plane shift. Anyways, they're, everyone's freaked out by it, so nobody bothers to attune to it, which is for the best. Anyways, the Gith are tracking this device, which makes sense to me because the... the uh, I should say that they're the Gith Yankee, not the Gith Zarai. The Gith Yankee are following this device, which makes sense because they are a war band that has come to this plane because they've detected a presence of the Illithids. And they would have the tools and technology and the methods for detecting them. They're their oldest enemy. So I don't need really to get into the specifics. I can just say, oh, well, yeah, no, they know how to, they know how to hunt the mind flayers. So they're tracking the players because, like, as long as they've got this black orb, then it's basically drawing the, the Githyanki to them. Also, they're kind of after the Thralls as well. I mean, wouldn't that make sense? If they can track sort of illicit technology, wouldn't they be able to detect in some kind of way when someone has been put under the influence of the of the mind flayers so as soon as like elwyn sticks his head above ground the gith are going to want to be there to maybe not to kill him immediately but to get him and try to use him to track down his uh, squid-faced masters anyways aside from that like those are my thoughts right now but as i said before in terms of things like concretely being planned out i don't have a whole heck of a lot trying to keep myself sort of mobile so that I can adjust quickly to what they will decide to do. But one thing that I do need to start thinking about is like where these players will end up. Like depending on how frequently the five of us are able to get together, which is proving very difficult this summer because, you know, people travel over the summer and it's not quite as easy to get together as often as you'd like. You know, this this campaign might be done in a few months. I don't know. Maybe a bit longer than that, maybe that who knows. Who knows how long it'll go? I guess it all depends on them. But I need to really start thinking about satisfactory endings, providing that they win. I mean, Candace asked me the other day, she said, you know, like after we're done this campaign, are we going to keep playing in the same world? Or are we going to keep playing the same characters? And I shrugged. I had no idea. I have not thought that far ahead. But it got me thinking. Wouldn't it be neat to start a campaign that picked right up after this one if they fail? If the next part of the campaign has maybe not specifically focused on the fact that this huge city has has just been replaced and turned into a fortress for mind flayers. It'd be kind of cool to have a story set in a world where all of a sudden there's this basically like this alien race that has taken over an entire population. Anyways... That's just a thought. But another story thread that I still have to wrap up is the one that hasn't been around for some time since episode 13. Was uh, 13 or 14? I guess it was sort of while they were in the underground. The former members of Spruce's monastery, who have since turned to evil. I still need to include them. I still need to wrap that up. And just to remind myself and to remind everyone listening... Their whole thing is that they think that the world, all existence, is living on borrowed time and they want to sort of 
help the world end. They think the world should have already ended 30 years ago. And so they'll ally themselves with anyone who sort of furthers this destructive goal. But I'd like to give Spruce a chance, and I'll have to figure out how exactly to manage this. What mechanic can be introduced? What narrative tool will serve this function? For Spruce to somehow redeem some members, maybe his former teacher, turn them from evil. Like Spruce, I think, out of everyone is the most innately good. I mean, it's quite obvious that he's the most innately good. So I feel like that would be a great ending for his character. Hopefully he would live to see it. But I feel like if he accomplished that and sort of if he happened to die during the process, I don't know. I mean, I feel like that would still be a good way to go out. As far as where to end up with Gilly, Vanna, and Faye, I'm less certain about that. I have the idea with Gilly eventually taking over the Thieves' Guild. I think that would be a great ending for him. Something happens to Martin, and Gilly has to sort of take up his mantle. I think that would be really good. Vanna, I think, is not too complex of a character, but I'm not quite sure what to do or to get how to like what situation would be a good ending for her and the same goes for Faye. Faye is just sort of in this long process learning of what it's like to be a hero what it means to be a hero and what it takes and so what's the logical end point of that i'm not sure i know that one of her main goals is to expose the world to her music i.e herself but uh let me know what you guys think what would be a satisfy if this was like a movie what would be a satisfactory ending for these characters, whether they lived or died? Anyways, that's all I've got for this one, this behind-the-screen episode. And the next one hopefully won't be as long. We'll see what, what happens. So thank you again for listening to this. And again, if you haven't checked out our Kickstarter, please do. And if you're enjoying these episodes, and I really do hope that you are, then tell a friend, leave us a review or a rating if you're so inclined. Other than that, we're just going to let the outro music take it away because it's so epic. Like, dun 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 d